We are, uh, <clears throat> we're in the midst of a, a new series on, on knowing God, and I, I always make this commitment when I'm doing a, a series, and that is not to like bring out old stuff that I've done before, but to, to relearn or to learn something different. And as we come to the, the section that we're going to look at today, God has just been wrecking me with this. It just feels incredibly personal to me. But it also feels really important today. So I'm going to ask you, because we're going we're gonna to think deeply about the revelation of God, about who He wants you to know that He is, and then how He wants you to respond to who He is. So I'm going to get you to read with me from Exodus chapter 3 and also Exodus chapter 20, two uh, passages, one early in Moses' uh, call, when he was originally called to lead the children of Israel, and then one after they have been rescued from Egypt and from the land of bondage. So I like it when you read the scriptures together. We're going to read right through from Exodus 3, the passage, and then we'll jump to 20 together. Let's read God's word. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say to this people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments." This is a, an extraordinary story of God's revelation to Moses. Moses was on Mount Sinai and he sees a bush and he says, this is an extraordinary sight because the bush was on fire, but the bush was not being consumed. It was visibly on fire. The fire was real and tangible and the heat was felt by Moses, and he, he said, this is such an extraordinary sight, i got to go see it. And as he gets there, God calls Moses into his assignment from the fire. Moses is, in a way, birthed or rebirthed in the fire of God. And out of the fire, he hears God's voice. God begins to speak to him and, and tell Moses what his assignment is, that his assignment is to go back to Egypt and to lead God's people out of slavery and, and, and into a new life and into the promised land. And when God speaks to Moses, as Moses hears God's voice, he hears God's passion for his people. He can hear that God is, 
is passionate about this. That he wants his, his people rescued. That he is filled with compassion for his people. He says, their cries have reached me. And he is beginning to move things and get things in order so that their deliverance comes. Moses says, you know, this mission that you're asking me, he says, who am I? Who am I to do this? Who am I that you should ask me to do this? I I can't speak. I'm not prepared for this. Who am I? I mean, (laughs) I don't think this is an unusual thing. I think when God really speaks to you, when you encounter the living God, and he says to you what destiny he has for you. When he says to you what assignment he really has for you, if you really listen to him, you realize, I can't do this. I'm not qualified for this. How in the world can I accomplish what God is asking me to do with my life and my talents and my, and my time and all these things? How can I do this? So Moses is right in line with that. He's saying, how is this possible? And yet, I just I want you to see a principle here, a principle that's so beautiful and powerful. Every single thing of Moses' past was preparing him for his future. He was taken up out of the water by the daughter of Pharaoh. He was made a prince in the house of Pharaoh. He was a prince of Egypt. I mean, nobody was more qualified to talk to Pharaoh on, a, on, on the behalf of the children of Abraham than, than Moses was. Everything in his past, though there were lots of failures and there was lots of escapes and there was running away and there was all kinds of stuff in his life, every single thing in his past was being woven into his destiny for his future. And he was, and I believe you are called to change the direction, even to change the, the projection of the trajectory of your family. If you listen to the last thing that we read, the choices that you make and the decisions that you make and the calls that you accept will either bring negative consequences to the next four generations or it will bring blessing and favor to hundreds of generations. Only one of you got that. Are any of the rest of you listening? See that... That, that means that where you're sitting right now and where God is speaking to you right now is not just about this moment. It's about not only your moments, but everybody who's connected to you's moments. And God wants to be the blessing in your life. And God wants to be the favor in a fallen world for you. But you've got to learn to hear His voice. And you've got to learn that you will only be as intimate with God as you're willing to submit and obey to his call, to his voice. Well, then Moses asks even a better question or a second question. He says, considering the mission that you're giving me, tell me your name. Can you imagine? Moses goes back to Egypt. He goes, "Uh, God sent me to deliver you from the Egyptians. And they said, well, Who is this God? Well, he was in a bush and there was a fire and a voice spoke. They're like, "Uh, we have a place for you, Moses. (laughs) And it wouldn't be leadership. And so Moses goes, "I, I have to be able to tell him who it is that has sent me to do this mission. 
And if you look, he goes, God goes, my name is, I am that I am. I mean, I'm a, I'm, I think Moses was probably expecting Steve, <laughs> Phil, Joe, something, you know. But here God just makes this statement. This is the name he gives. An enigmatic name. I am that I am. I, I am who I am. And sometimes it's even translated, I'm going to be who I'm going to be. You know, and so he goes, well, Moses, I give you a little more to go on. I'm the God of Abraham. I'm the God of Isaac. I'm the God of Jacob. I'm the God of your fathers. Tell them the God of their fathers has sent me. And so you have this, this connection, this relationship to the past, but also you have God revealing himself in this fire this revelation of God's character, this revelation of his nature in the bush. And what you have to see, Moses understood this. He'd never seen anything like this before. What you have there is a pure fire. You have a fire that does not need the bush to exist. It has its own energy source. It has its own fuel. The fire of God needs nothing to be a fire. The fire of God needs nothing from you to burn. Now you have to understand what this is saying. You have a fire inside of you. You have passion. You have compassion. You have, you have drives. You have hungers. You have all of these things. But you need fuel. You need fuel from something else or someone else in order to burn. You cannot set a bush on fire without consuming the bush. Only God can set a bush on fire. Only God has a purifier. See, you and I, we have a mixed fire. Even if we've been believers for a long time, we have a mixture. We have a mixture of lust and ambition. We have a mixture of impatience and anger. We have a mixture. Only our God can set a bush on fire and not need the bush. You and I, we need and depend and we use and we manipulate. See, if you're willing to let God be the fire, the power, He can set you on fire without consuming you. One of the things that happens to so many people that I know is they say, I'm working for God. Or I'm walking in the Spirit. But you see them burnt out. You see them depressed. You see them disillusioned. You see them angry or whatever it is. You see the problem was they had a mixed fire. They had ambition, but they called it the will of God. Or they had adrenaline, but they called it the Holy Spirit. They manipulated, but they called it prophecy. You see, you and I have to realize there is only one pure fire. And that fire doesn't need us. We are not its fuel. You may be a passionate follower of Jesus, but your passion is not the fire, nor is it the fuel for the fire. He is a consuming fire. We've prayed this as we sang. Sometimes we slip in really good things in our songs to you. We give you permission to consume God all we are. Whether you meant it or not, you sang it. I've known God, if you give him an inch, he takes a mile. And it's good for you. You understand... The scriptures here said when God revealed his whole being to Moses, Moses couldn't handle it. 
Now Moses was a great leader, probably one of the greatest leaders that's ever existed. Moses was a righteous man, a godly man. We would think of him as way above most of us in this room. And yet when Moses met God in the fire, Moses hid his face. Why is that? Well, because there is this, there is this revelation in God's name and in the fire that God is simply God. Now that may not seem that that may not seem that profound to you, but think about this. There is a simplicity of God that's not true of you. You are complex. You are divided. You are distracted. You are, you know, you are going in so many directions at one time. Our God is simply God. And and we're not Another example is Satan and the demons. The essence of Satan, the nature of Satan is evil. It's pure evil. But he can masquerade as an angel of light. He can deceive by good works his essence which is evil to the core. People in the New Age can be utterly deceived and think they're talking to Jesus when they're talking to a demon because he, he has no compunction whatsoever about lying about who he is. But the truth is, Satan is not the only one whose attributes and his essence are not the same. You and I, our essence and our attributes are not the same. You may say to me, oh, I'm such a good person, but I bet you if I come hang out with you at home, I could really see where you're not such a good person. Really, all I have to do is ride in the car with you. (laughs) Yesterday, I drove to Brooklyn to have lunch with my son. I don't know what they were trying to show, but it was not good. These drivers, they were flamboyant in their attributes, in their profanity, in their horn honking, and everything. And I bet you if I asked them, are you a good person? Of course I am. Just because I use that one finger exclusively (laughs) doesn't mean I'm not a good person. You see, we are complicated. Our essence or who we think we are is not always in align with the attributes that come out of us. One day... One day when you deal with your parents, one day your dad or your mom might be generous and kind and the very next day you say or do the same thing and they're angry and losing it with you. But they'll say, I'm a good parent. And you're like, no, you're not. You're a bad parent. By your attributes, you're a bad parent. And many of us are confused about God because of the attributes of our parents. You have to understand, when I say God is a God of simplicity. It has deep, deep meaning. It means this. His essence is his attributes. And his attributes are his essence. In other words, there is not this God who sometimes is truthful, but other times lies. There is not a God who is good, but other times he's going to be just and righteous and angry and all of this. The Bible says God is the same all the time. All his attributes are all together. He's not just loving, but he is just at the same time. He is, he is everywhere present and he is always wise. He is always holy and he is always good. There is none of the attributes of God that is separated from any other, any other attributes. They all work together in perfect 
harmony because they are who he is through and through. That's why we can make that claim that Danny just said was a word to you. His promises are yes and amen because they're not based on you, they're based on him. Even when you are faithless, he cannot deny himself. You see, you and I can make some promises, we keep them. We make other promises that we can't possibly keep, but we make them because we want to make people happy. And so then we break our promise and say, well, you should have understood it was too big of a promise anyway. I couldn't have kept that. You should have known. And we, we, we import our own insufficiency to our own view of God. You see, when He says it, it's already true because He's already true. Let me give you an example. One of the greatest passages in the Scripture is 1 John 1.9. It is so clearly the heart of God. He says this to you and me. He says, do you want to be intimate with me? you want to come close to me? Then all you have to do is confess where your sins are. If you confess your sins. Now when he says that, he's saying, you've got to own it. You've got to realize that this doesn't work. You've got to realize that you attach your life to things that you thought would make you free, that you thought would make you whole, that you thought would satisfy you. You attach, but now you're confessing, you're realizing, you're repenting, you're realizing, this doesn't work for me, God. You're not just trying to get out of it. You're not just caught, but you're really at that place where you said, a life apart from the Spirit doesn't work. And when you confess it, that's all He asked of you. All He asks is that you realize that you, you announce, this isn't working for me. This has kept me from you. And when you get real like that, it, it doesn't matter if there are tears or not, but you come to that realization that this doesn't work. Every person I've ever known who really begins a life in the Spirit is a person who says a life apart from the Spirit doesn't work. And when you come to that place, 1 John says, then He takes over. He says, then He is faithful and just. You see, He is God and He is God. His attributes are His essence and His essence are His attributes. And so He is faithful and just. And then it says, what does He do? Forgive you. He is faithful and just to forgive your sins. And then He goes the next step because what is He? He's the purifier. And what does a purifier do? Cleanses you of all unrighteousness. Do you understand how simple He has made it to be close to Him? All you have to do is quit being dishonest. All you have to do is swallow your pride and go, I invested in things that do not work. I have tried lies and I'm going to try the truth now and I'm going to go after it with my whole self. Now, the part that has always kind of intrigued me about this is why does it say when it, when it announces his character, why does it say he's faithful and just? It would seem when we're dealing with forgiveness, we could have said he's faithful and gracious or faithful and merciful, which he is. But it says he's faithful and just. Well, it's really simple, friends. God is God. God is all his attributes. God is, in his essence, all his attributes. So when God is acting in forgiveness to you, he has tied his forgiveness to his justice. In other words, he couldn't have forgiven you if he hadn't already satisfied his justice. And so here's how his justice is satisfied. The Father received the payment for your sins on the cross of Calvary. The receipt for that payment 
was recorded on Easter Sunday morning when Jesus rose from the dead. And our Father will never accept a second payment when He's already taken the first payment. And now in His justice, He says, you are forgiven. And in His faithfulness, He cleanses you of all that was unrighteous in you. The problem for most of us is we don't believe Him. We think we got to do something. I got to make up for this. I got to atone for this. I got to do better. Let me tell you, friends, let him be the cleanser. Your fire will just mess it up. You'll just burn yourself. That's it's just get all burned and have to go to the doctor and the ER and everything else. Just quit it. Stop it now. Quit playing with those matches altogether. Let him be the cleansing fire. Because see, he can cleanse you without consuming you. He can cleanse you without destroying you. Only He can do that. Well, in the end, let me explain it this way. In the end, God has only one attribute. Godness. Okay, I made that word up. Okay, but it's, it's a theologically correct word. God has godness. In other words, let me, let, me, let me illustrate this for you. Every time something bad happens to you and you go, Oh God! You can't possibly be good and let this happen to me. You're not, see what you're doing, you're not questioning his goodness. You're questioning his godness. You're basically saying, you can't be God and let this happen to me. You see, the issue is many of us are angry with God because God will not allow the success of our idolatry. We want him to resource our idolatry. And when he doesn't do it, we get angry with him. And yet our God says, I'm a jealous God. See, when you say to God, oh God, you couldn't let me be in this pain or you couldn't let this happen to me. You couldn't possibly do this if you love me. You're really saying you can't be God unless you do it my way. Unless you're on my agenda. Unless you're made in my image. See, there is this part that you and I have to understand. Clearly, we have to understand that we are made in the image of God. We have to understand that we're image bearers of God. And that's what gives us dignity. That's what gives us worth and value and gives every single one of us personhood. But at the same time, we are not God. And we are not like Him in this. Your attributes and your essence are always seems to be divided. One day you're cruel, one day you're kind. It, does, it seems to depend on circumstances, hormones, on all kinds of whatever's going on, the TV show you watch or the music you listen to or whatever's going on, you can hook into in such a way that you can become a different person. Our God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He can be counted on. That's why you can trust Him. Now, at the same time, it's really interesting that many people are very, uh, very afraid of God. And so one of the ways that God has accommodated our inability to access his revelation of himself is that he has presented his individual attributes and emphasized them at different times. For example, Isaiah emphasized the holiness of God. Uh, John writes about the love of God. It doesn't just say that God has love, but John says God is love. And so there are all these times where an individual characteristic of God is emphasized. The revelation, it emphasizes the judgment of God and the justice of God as we stand before His throne in the, in the great judgment to come. 
Why, is the, why has the Bible done this? Because we can't handle all His attributes at one time. Because if we were to see all that He is, we wouldn't just hide our faces, we would explode. And so God has always accommodated you and me. And the more you want to get close to Him, the more you want to draw near to Him, then what He reveals to you, you have to handle well. I meet lots of people here in New York who have encountered the love of God. And they will say to me, I, I just love how loving God is. I love how merciful He is. I love how gracious He is. And all those things are true. But His love is also holy. And so when you say, I'm so glad that I'm forgiven, I'm so glad that there is grace, but then you keep living in your lies. You keep living in your sexual lies. You keep living in your financial lies. You keep living in your time lies. Then you'll only come as close as your lies. Because the only way to draw near to God is submit and obey. And what He wants you to do is to have a hunger, a fire in you for His glory. And what is His glory? It's a manifestation of all that God is in Himself. And when you see His glory, you are transformed. And, and this, is, this is what the Bible says, that God dwells in immortality. He dwells in unapproachable light. No one has seen and no one can see, see. And Paul says to Him, be honor and glory and eternal dominion forever. <laughs> when... When Moses uh, was leading the people of Israel, he came to this one point that God said, you know, my, the people are so resistant to me that I'm not going to dwell with them in a manifest way. I'm not going to dwell with them in their midst with my glory. And he said to Moses, he said, Moses, that, I, I made this promise to you. This is who I am. I am that I am. So you will go to the promised land. You will have success over your enemies. He actually said to Moses, you will have health and you will have blessing and you'll look 25 till you're 120 years old, you know, kind of a thing. And, and uh, you'll have strength and you'll have power and you'll have all of this. Your clothes won't wear out. Your shoes won't wear out. You'll have something to eat all your life. He, he gives this incredible promise. In a way, if I could just make it contemporary, it would be like, God said to you directly, here's my promise to you. Your business will be successful. You'll have amazing retirement. You'll have every house you want. You'll have your vacation home. You'll have all the clothes you could possibly ever have. You always will have security and money in the bank. And if anybody ever opposes you, you will have victory over them. My favor is with you. And Moses said, I don't care. If your presence doesn't go with us, what good are those promises? What does it matter if we're going to have success, Moses said? Well, it's going to matter if we have a land of our own. What will matter if you're not with us? Show me your glory. Either your presence goes with us, Moses said, or we don't leave this place. I think a lot of us would have settled for the promise. Because our idolatry is the clothes. Our idolatry is the success. Our idolatry is having enough money to be secure in our bank account, to have enough money to tell people off and not have to depend on anybody. Moses said, I could have all that, but if I don't have your presence, show me your glory. I'm asking today, I got more to ask you, but my first question of you is this. Do you understand, you will never be fully you 
until you are fully His. And you will never know the satisfaction and purpose of life until you realize the trappings are provision, nothing more. They will never satisfy even the vision and destiny you have for yourself. It is not until you realize it doesn't matter how much silver or gold you have. If you don't have his presence, it is not fulfilling. And Moses got that. And Moses got it so well that when he would meet with God, the glory of God would start shining on his face. But the problem was when he would come down from meeting with God or when he'd come out of the tabernacle with meeting with God, the people would be so afraid. They'd say, Moses, put a veil on. We don't want to see this. This scares us. Here's the thing. Don't be like them. Say, I want it. Even if it scares me, I want it. I mean, isn't there anything in you that says, I'm sick and tired of a life without fire? I mean, isn't there a hunger inside of you that says, I can only be satisfied by your presence? Well, God so much wanted his people to see him. God so much wanted his people to not be afraid of him. That in the New Testament, we see that God veils himself in flesh. He had no likeness or superiority that we should look upon him but he humbled himself and he took on the form of a servant so that you and i could behold our god in the face of jesus this is an amazing thing when you realize that this god who is so amazing this god who is a purifier longs for relationship with you so much that he veiled his glory so you could look him face to face and in the eyes. Paul goes so far, and this is one of my favorite things to preach at funerals, but Paul goes so far to say that when the perfect comes, either when Jesus returns or you go home to be with Jesus, you will see him face to face. And if you are in Christ, you will not see a scowling face. You will see a look in your eyes that you have been looking for your whole life. And when you see the face of Jesus, you're not going to say, Jesus, you got some explaining to do. You're going to look in his eyes and you're going to say, it was all worth it. This is what I was made for, to look into the eyes of my Savior. So what do we do with this? Well, the second part of what we read says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of bondage, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. So in other words, he's saying, he is such in his person, he is such in his attributes, he is such in his nature, his essence, his identity, that you can only approach him if you will approach him as your supreme authority. If you will approach him as the supreme power in your life. Now, Every single one of us, psychologists say, we have, this, we have this capacity, we have this kind of center in our heart where we find a power and we latch onto it. And the way they learned this was through people who were abducted or kidnapped, that they would, in their, in their survival state, in the state of being under the control of abusers or captives, they latch on to their captor and they begin, to, they begin to draw, they feel like their power or their security 
or whatever it is from this person who has abused and hurt them now becomes their power source. Even so much so that some of them actually became terrorists themselves because of this psychological capacity of the heart to latch on to whoever or whatever is the most powerful thing in your life. And what God is saying in this very first you know, revelation of his heart for his people, he's saying to them, if you're latched on to any other power source than me, that is idolatry. And what I want you to understand this morning, why this morning is so important, is every single misery in your life, every anxiety in your life, every anger in your life, all the bitterness in your life, every one of them can be traced to a place where you have latched on to an idol as a power source. And what God is saying to you when He says, I am that I am, and I will be that I will be, He's saying to you, unlatch, unhook yourself from these other power centers. Their purpose is to destroy you. To consume you. I alone can give you the fire without destroying you. And so He asks of us, you know, this thing is... What are your idols? Is God supreme? You know, this is one of the real keys of knowing yourself is, is, and understanding why you are the way you are. Is All you have to look and see underneath all of your issues, there's an idol. There's a lie. So the Lord comes at it this way. He says to His people, and He says to you, I am the Lord your God. Now, if you analyze this, this is really, this is really very powerful. He doesn't say, I'm God, do this. Do this or I'm going to get you. He says, I am the Lord. So he is the creator. He is the mighty one. He is the one over all things. God never gave up his rulership. God is still the king. He is still the Lord. And he, whether you know it or not, he owns you. When you end your life, you will answer to him, not Satan. And so he is that. But notice what he says. He doesn't say the God. He says your God. What God is saying here is so beautiful and so powerful. He's saying, if you give yourself to me, you will recognize and realize that I have fully given myself to you. There is, this, there is a binding that's going on here. There is, he's binding his heart. It's, the picture should be for you. He's standing at the altar and he's saying, will you? And he's asking, will you commit? Will you covenant with me? Will you take on a binding legal uh, connection to me so that all that I am becomes all that you have? For example, if you bind yourself to him, all his wisdom is now yours. If you bind yourself to him, all his power is now yours. All his love is now yours. His immortality is now yours. This is an amazing thing. As long as God exists, if you are bound to Him, you will exist. And He's saying to you, I want this to be our covenant relationship, this binding commitment between me and you. Now, this actually runs against everything in our society. One of the things that I've watched with, with a lot of interest has been Woody Allen's life. Now, you can judge me, but I really like Woody Allen's movies. I mean, I, 
I liked him even when I lived in Jackson, Mississippi and knew nothing of Manhattan. You know, I just thought that, that his snarky humor just fits with my personality. <laughs> but when he and, and Mia Farrell had their, their split up in the, in the New York, not in the national media, but in the New York media, something very interesting took place. They were devastated. And the reason they were devastated, never got to the national level, but it was in the society level of New York, the reason they were devastated is this. They believed that Woody Allen and Mia Farrell were the ideal couple of a new age. They had this deep emotional intimacy. They had this deep you know, love for each other, but they had no commitment whatsoever to each other. They didn't even live together. They, they had love and emotion and intimacy with no responsibility and with complete freedom. Well, guess how that turned out? Woody was at least sleeping with her adopted daughter and probably, possibly abusing other children in the home. Now, you may say, well, he's defended himself and said he didn't do it. But you know what he said when he left with that 19-year-old girl? The heart wants what the heart wants. Do you understand? Without commitment, without responsibility, there is no intimacy. You can only count on people you can trust. You can only count on people whose word is good. Because if the heart wants what the heart wants with no responsibility and no conditions, you can't count on that person. They could be stealing everything you have. Are you understanding my illustration here? We want total freedom. We want absence of responsibility, but we want deep commitment and love without it. Let me just tell you, it's impossible. And God says, the freedom that you really long for and the love that you were made for is only found when you bind yourself to me. He has created you to be dependent. You can't escape it. In other words, it's like Bob Dylan said, you got to serve somebody. It could be the devil or it could be the Lord, but you got to serve somebody. Now let me tell you, are you tracking with me on this? Listen, let me tell you a story about how how obvious it is the human heart was made to serve. I listened to this, uh, it was a mega church pastor telling a story. He said, you know, it's a church of 30,000 people. And they, they gave an invitation on a Saturday for as many people as wanted to to come be baptized. And so he said, out of the 800 who came to be baptized, he saw this one guy. And it was an older man, and he was obviously disabled, and he, he had to have a wheelchair to come to the baptismal pool. And the baptismal pool had stairs that went up and stairs that went down. And a young man scooped this older man up in his arms, carried him over the stairs into the pool when he was baptized, carried him back and brought him to his wheelchair and dried him off and did all that. And this, this megachurch pastor said, that guy really impressed me. So I went over and I, I asked him, is this your father or your grandfather? And this young man said, no, um, last Sunday I was in church and I never met him before, but he was sitting right next to me. And he started to, to just kind of say, oh, I wish I could go to the baptism. I've always wished I could be baptized, but there's no way I can. I have no car. I have no way to get there. When I get there, I can't get in the pool because I, have my, I can't use my legs. So this young man goes, don't you worry about it. 
Where do you live? What do you need? Next Saturday, I'll come, I'll pick you up. I'll carry you into the baptism pool. I'll make sure that you're taken care of, and I'll make sure that you come home. This guy gave up a Saturday for someone he'd never met. Now, why I tell you that story is because if you have half a heart right now, you're like, isn't that beautiful? (laughs) That somebody would just say, I'll take care of you. I'll serve you. Because you realize when you hear that story, that's what we were made for. That's when we are truly ourselves. That's when we are most like what we always wanted to be. You have to, friends, serve somebody. It'll either be your idol or it'll be the Lord. And when you serve, not only will the person you're serving, the people you're serving be blessed, but you will be blessed as well. Well, it's in our nature to turn towards other gods than God. But I'm asking you today to realize that under the bitterness that you feel or the loneliness or the anxiety, under that is you're worshiping something that has let you down. All of our misery comes from worship of other things than God. In order to gain power, we actually lose our power. In Romans 1, it says, we exchange the truth of God for a lie. And when we exchange the truth of God for a lie, we're, we're, we're failing to understand there's a reason why the first commandment is worship the Lord your God only and Him alone. It's the first commandment. It's the thing above all things. And, and many of us, when, when we really begin to walk with God, we realize it's not about doing. It's about worshiping. That our first call is not what we do, but who we get our orders from. Who we get our life from. Who we've latched on to for our power source. I have lots of friends who have burned out in the ministry because they never understood the first call was to worship. The first call was to open up their hearts and say, you're the supreme authority. You're the power for my life. Well, here's what the nature of idolatry. Some of you will say to me, I've been in church my whole life. I'm not an idolater. Yes, you are. Because all of us hate giving up control. Even in the garden, the lie of the serpent is, if you do what he says, he'll control you. And so he's the, the enemy, even in the early days, said, let's, let's, let's keep control from the Creator. Let's not give Him the glory. So many of us, though, in spite of the fact that we fear losing control, we have this necessity of giving something value, of having something in our lives that justifies our living. And so we begin to have worship of, of vain things or, or false things instead of worshiping the one true God. And that thing begins to control you. So there's, this, there's actually this very delusional nature to all idolatry, exchanging the truth for a lie. But the issue is this. The real idols in our lives are good things that we elevate to God things. Uh, I'm going to give you one illustration because it's one that I work with with a lot of people is that they're very addicted to pornography and so many times they'll say stuff to me how can this be bad I'm not hurting anybody or anything else and so I've had to really think through what is it about pornography that is so destructive in the lives of people now there are many things but the 
the number one thing is that pornography is idolatry. Now, it's idolatry in this way. Sex is a good thing. God has not called sex dirty. He doesn't say it's something you have to do in order to reproduce. He gave it to us as a gift. He gave it to us as a, a foretaste of the joys of heaven for all time. He doesn't call it dirty or filthy. He calls it good. And as a matter of fact, the human body and the joy that we have in beauty or strength or, 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 or even intellect or, or understanding or whatever it is about the human that's so attractive to us, God calls that good. So the issue is, though, that he has said that that goodness must actually be in covenantal relationship with one another. He does not call us to be physically naked with one another unless we're also personally naked and vulnerable with each other. So that when we are that exposed to each other, we know that this person has a commitment, that they have bound their life to our life. And he has called us not just to superficial pleasure-seeking, but he has called us to safety and security of a loving relationship that can be counted on. And the goodness of that relationship results in, in sexuality, re results in children, results in all of these other things. But when you give yourself to pornography, you take those good things and then you worship you worship the body. You worship the act. You adore. You give yourself over to something that is delusional. What is fantasy but a delusion? What is imaginary except that it's not real? And so what happens to us is by the, by the craftiness of this world, by the craftiness of our own flesh, we find ourselves latched on to a power that has no covenantal commitment to us, but originates in a place of counterfeit intimacy so that now we're not able to be satisfied with real people. We're not able to give ourselves fully to a real relationship because we're giving ourselves to the seductive delusion of the fantasy. Now, I know, I just went from preaching to meddling. But I want you to understand something. If you've felt dry with God, it's usually because he's putting his finger on a place of idolatry and he's saying, will you unlatch yourself from this and, and connect yourself and bind yourself to your covenant with me? And let me tell you, if any of you believe this lie, it's okay as long as my husband or my wife doesn't cheat on me with somebody else. They've already cheated on you with somebody else. They actually cheated on you with somebody you can never compete with because they're not real. So now, every time they're with you, they're comparing. Every time they're with you, they're going, well, this is hard, this is, this is difficult, I, I don't think we connect that much. And before long, even the goodness of the sex life gets destroyed in the marriage. You understand, every idol will let you down. It will destroy you. It's its purpose to destroy you. And God says, no other gods before me. I mean, think about this with me. He says, I am a jealous God. I don't want anything else to have my place. I don't want sex to have my place. I don't want your money to have my place. I don't want your career to have my place. Now, this is an amazing statement. 
that our God would be so vulnerable and so open to say to you, I love you so much that I, I am jealous when you give your love to that which is not me. When you latch your power of your life and, the, and your future into things that are dumb idols, even if they're good things. You see, a lot of people make their family an idol. A lot of people make their marriage an idol. Think about this with me. What's an idol of the workaholic? Well, the workaholic says, if I produce, then I have worth. But I, don't have, I can't justify my life unless I, I produce. What is the codependent person? What's their idolatry? Well, the codependent person actually needs more than one person. The codependent person has, has, has an interlocking idolatry with somebody else. You see, in the codependent relationship, somebody's got to be messed up. And so the messed up person says, I'm the messed up person. And I only have any worth or value or my life isn't worth anything unless I'm messed up. Unless I'm having a crisis. I won't get any attention unless I'm dying. Uh, kind of a thing. That's their idolatry. And so they find another person who has idolatry. is i got to save people. i got to rescue people. And what they're doing is they're really trying to rescue themselves, but they play like or believe the lie that they're actually rescuing the messed up person. But you see, you can't rescue a messed up person because they won't be a person anymore if they're not messed up. (laughs) It's an ever-interlocking idolatry. Come on, you see it? I'm looking around and the Lord is pointing to some of you because you're burned up and you're burned out because you tried to rescue people. And others of you are so messed up. Oh, I'm in crisis. You wouldn't know what it was to be more than a conqueror because your idolatry keeps you a victim. You don't realize that he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. There's not a person in your family who can rescue you. There's not a pastor on earth. I got nothing. I've never healed anybody. I've never saved anybody. I've never set anybody free. But I know the one who does. And now all I can do is connect you to them. If you don't want to connect to them, you're going to stay messed up because that's your idolatry. And guess what? You're choosing it. Oh, I can't help it. My life is just like... No, you can help it. You're choosing that idol. That idol speaks to you and you listen. And those of you who say, but I got to save all these people. That idol speaking to you and you listen. There's only one Savior and it ain't you. And it never will be you. And if they don't want the Savior, you can't save them. Are you hearing me? Are you sorry you came today? So what happens then? Oh, idols have to be destroyed, right? I can't just, I can't just say, okay, I'm going to leave you like a Buddha statue in my house. I'm going to let you be there. No, you've got to destroy it. You've got you to burn, you burn this thing. You've got to trash it. So here's what you have to do first. You have to settle the issue. Because either you're an idolater or you're a believer. There's no middle ground. Either you're a follower or you're an idolater. The idolater says, I want a God that pleases me. I want a God that I like. A God who does it the way I think it ought to be done. Heaven help us. But there are plenty of people who say that. And every time somebody says, basically says, I can't believe he let this happen. They're basically saying, he's not the God that I like. He's not the God who pleases me. But the follower, the believer begins to say, you know what? I believe in a God 
who is making me into a new person who can please Him. I have come to this conclusion that one of the keys of the Scripture is God is not interested in morally restrained hearts. He's looking to supernaturally transform your heart so that instead of idolatry, He is the supreme. He is the ultimate. He is your treasure. He is your power source. And you have learned how to hook into Him in every situation. I know that in all things, God works together for good for those who love Him and who are called according to His purposes. Is that you? Or is you made a God in your own image? He'll always disappoint you. I really want Him to recreate me in His image. He's molding me. He's shaping me. He will not let one of my sorrows be wasted. Look underneath every symptom you have, and they're all symptoms, friends. And you'll see that under there, there's idolatry. There's pseudo-salvations. Identify those idols in your heart. Well, one of my favorite ways to do it is this. is to realize the one who justifies my life, the one who makes my existence worth living, is not me or my performance. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. There was a, one of my favorite movies of all time. It's called Chariots of Fire. And in that movie, there's a, a man who has trained his whole life to win the 100-yard dash. I think it was 1920-something, 22 or something like that, Olympics. Right before the contest, he says to his coach, I have 10 seconds to justify my existence. Because he's given everything to the race. He's given everything to the gold medal. He says, I have 10 seconds to justify my existence here on earth. Well, I don't want to ruin the movie for you, but he wins. He gets the gold medal. And after celebrating and everything, he looks in a private moment, he says, is this all that there is? See, one of the issues is we work for our idols, but then even when we are given the success, we go, is this all that there is? Does this justify all the work? Does this justify all the anxiety, all of the worry that I have carried all these years for this? And the Bible is so clear and is so settling. The God who is I am that I am in Romans 8 says, He's the one who justifies your existence. You never have to question whether you have worth or value or are qualified or anything else. Romans 8 says, God is the one who justifies you. And then he goes on and he says, who is it that could bring a charge against you? Who could condemn you? The only one who could, he says, is Jesus Christ and he died for you. And then it goes on and it says, the next step in that it says, if God be for you, who can be against you? He who spared not his own son, will he not freely give you all things in him? And then it says, what can separate you from the love of God in Christ? Not anything it goes on to say. Neither death, nor life, nor principalities, nor powers, nor even idiots like you and me. Oh, man. Why would you give yourself to an idol? Why would you latch into a counterfeit power source, even if it looks good, when the only being that has ever existed who is his essence and his attributes, and his attributes are his essence, 
The only one who can say, I can't say I am that I am and I will be that I will be. I hope tomorrow I will not be the same I was today. But he can say, I am that I am. I will be that I will be. And all his promises are yes and amen. If God is for you, who can be against you? Will you stand with me? Look, I know for some of you it might be a new concept, but it is a powerful concept, very profound. God is not like your dad or your mom or your coach or your teacher. He is not subject to moods or hormones or chemicals or, or anything else. He is today what He always was, and He is today what He always will be. And His word to you from start to finish is, I want to be your God. I want you to realize that I'm standing at the altar. There is no marriage unless you say, I do. There is no covenant unless you say, I will. But he's standing there, binding himself to you. I am the Lord, your God. He brought the Israelites out of bondage, but he has brought you out of sin and death. If you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive your sin and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. The blood of the Lord Jesus Christ cleanses of all unrighteousness. What an awesome thing. I'm not running from God, friends. I'm running to Him. How about you? I'm getting rid of these idols that He's showing me. Ministry can be an idol. I don't want it anymore. The desire for power, having more control, is in the way of actually yieldedness and submission to the One who is the true supreme power. The One who is in us is greater than He who is in the world. If you're born of God, then what's in you must overcome the world. You are more than conquerors through Christ Jesus. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Man, these are really settled things. It's so interesting. Sometimes I see people and they'll say, God is good all the time, all the time. God is good. But they don't even mean it. They don't even understand what they're saying. Sometimes I want to say, shut up. Because it's just cliche. You see, but when you know the simplicity of God, you don't have to try to convince yourself. You realize, even in this circumstance, my God is good. Even though I was faithless, He is faithful. Even though my past is riddled with disappointment and mistakes, my God can redeem my past just like He took the Israelites out of Egypt. He can take me out of my bondage and He can bring me into the promised land of the destiny He has for me. But I say to you today, you can only be as close to Him as you're willing to submit and obey. You've got to serve somebody. You're either an idolater or you're a believer. I call on you today in the house of God to say, Lord, You are my God. You're not just the God. You are my God. Would you call on Him? Would you make this a day of marriage, a binding com- commitment, a binding covenant with Him? Intimacy cannot be had without responsibility. You have to take your part. If you're angry with God, I just want you to realize you're angry because He hasn't let your idol be successful. He has not allowed you to resource your idolatry. 
because he is a jealous God. He has made himself vulnerable so that you can draw close to him. But when you give yourself to others, he will not give success to your idolatry. Give yourself to him today. Lord, we seal what you're doing. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I know, I mean, I know every Sunday it's important, but there's something about today that's just deeply important. We are a people that God can take a long way if we're willing to go. God bless you. We'll see you next week.